The way of the world. The familiar. The routine. Drifting toward the same ends. Heading off in the distance. As if there was no other way. But when you meet Christ, you realize there's a different direction. A guide that invites you on a counter-cultural pilgrimage. You find a sweet harmony in conversation, in step with him. You realize the blessing that it is to be near to him. He asks you to drop everything, to follow the path toward him. And while the walk is certainly not without its challenges, you are not left unattended. But it's easy to lose focus. It may not be intentional, but if you're not disciplined to move, the gap can widen and you'll become used to your callousness. He desires to have you close and you remember how pleasing it is. But the affairs of the world can become rather overwhelming and there are times when you feel trapped, times when you get preoccupied, distracted, pushed, pulled, bogged down and you realize the instant that you're not actively moving toward him, you're moving away from him. Remember who called you to this journey and run to him. Well, I want to welcome you guys all here this morning for our second week of Fight the Good Fight. And as we're joined this morning, you'll see there are kids in our room today because on our fifth Sunday of any month that has five Sundays, we invite the families to sit together and worship together and be a part of this together. So you're going to hear some extra noise, which is always a pleasure to me, and I'm excited about it. But for the past two and a half years, what we've done is we've been going through this thing called the Gospel Project. And the Gospel Project is something that the kids do back in the back and the adults do out here, and hopefully with the intention of you guys meeting after church and talking about, hey, what did you learn? What did I learn? Be able to tie those things together. And for the past two and a half years, as we've been going through it, really it's all about how the Old Testament points towards Jesus. We did that for the first about year and a half. And starting back about this time last year, we started into the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that wrapped up right at Easter of this year. And as that wrapped up at Easter of this year, we started talking about the New Testament letters, the book of Acts, and all of that, how it all ties in together and how it points back at Jesus. And really, since the, the fall kickoff, we've really focused on Acts, and we looked at Acts with the, the church united, and us being together in the gospel mission, us being united together in, in the essentials of Christ. And, and we took this wide-scale look at the church, and then last week, as we started this fight the good fight, we have narrowed that down from the broad spectrum of the church to those who make up the church, and that is you and I. So as we're looking at this, we're starting this series calling Fight the Good Fight, we have to remember that we are believers who make up the church. We as followers of Christ, we who are the body, we've been called to something greater than what we have in this world. 
We've been called to live for something greater than this world that we even live in. We've been called to something greater than a life that is self-absorbed and all about me and my kingdom. As we've been called to that, God, as you even saw in that video, he's calling us to himself, and we have to go against the world. And in the going against that world, I'll tell you very honestly, it's a battle. And Satan does not want to give you up. And and there's a very good chance there's a battle that is taking place in you even today. Some of you did not want to wake up this morning. Some of you did not want to to get to this place of of hearing and be able to praise because there's just that battle of, well, I can do anything else on Sunday. Oh, and, and I'm not saying anything against those watching online, but sometimes we can use that as an excuse to not gather together. I understand there's many that that have to, but some, it's just an excuse. We have to be careful when we come to that because there's a battle that takes place. And last week, as we talked about this battle taking place, we talked about the battle that we have with our idols and the things of this world that we worship, the things of this world that we put before God, um, things that get our priorities, things that get our funding, things that get our lives instead of God. And I'll be honest with you, last week I told you there'd be a pretty good chance you'd be mad at me by the end of the service. And and many people actually came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I just want to let you know that I I wasn't mad, I was convicted. And I said, well, I'm glad for that because some people can respond to conviction with anger and saying, there is no way I'm laying down my life and giving it to Christ. I'm going to hold on to these idols even tighter and he continued to be distracted from the mission. Or we can say the words that we sang even this morning, I lay me down because I'm not my own. I am yours, God, and yours alone. So take my life and let it shine, shine, shine. But that's a battle. If that's the battle we fight that we need to be prepared for. It's the battle we fight that we need to be prepared for, and I hope this week challenges you and encourages you and maybe even convicts you similar to last week's. Does anybody remember our question from last week? I doubt it because I had to look it up too. Okay, so, so the reality is, is that we have these questions, and this is kind of the one that we're going to hold on to for the entire series of this fight, the good fight, but the question comes down to what does it actually mean to fight the good fight what does it mean to fight the good fight to know why we fight to know what we are fighting against to live a life that we have been called to what does that mean what does it look like translated into our lives and and really i'm going to like i told you last week i'm going to expand on those questions to to really tie into a specific for the week my question this week is what is it actually that we are fighting for What is it we are fighting for? What are you living for? And not to be confused at why are you even alive, not asking that. What is it in your life that you are actually living for? What is your purpose? This last week, um, we watched a documentary on Netflix called Found. Found is a documentary about three girls who were adopted from China who did DNA tests, found out throughout the United States they were related, began to build a relationship over FaceTime, over Zoom, over those kind of things like that. And through it all, came to this place where they said, we want to see if we can find our biological parents. And so what they did is they they got together with, uh, uh, I can't remember what company it was, one of those DNA companies, and they actually sent investigators throughout China from the places, the orphanages they were at, 
and to go and find their biological parents. I'm not going to ruin the documentary if you choose to watch it, but they did find one of the nannies that had watched them from birth until they were adopted. And in the process of finding the nanny, the nanny was sitting there talking, and she was just overwhelmed to see these girls growing up because she had literally invested her life into these children until they were adopted. So she, she took them on as her own. And one of the questions that the investigator had asked was, when, when you saw these girls, was it your dream from a time that you were little to, to work with children, to be able to work uh, even in an orphanage to help these kids find forever homes? And her answer crushed me. Her answer was, I come from the country. We have no dreams. And I said, why do you live? That was my question out loud, talking to the TV. If you have no dreams, if you have nothing to live for, you're basically just existing. Why do we live? And that question really got the whole message for today in this fight, the battles that we have going in my mind. See, last week we looked at, at Paul and his Acts 19 journey as he went into Ephesus. And as he did, he challenged them to stand up against the man-made idols that we have in our lives. And today we're going to keep moving forward in Acts chapter 20. And as we do, it really launches the rest of the book of Acts and really the rest of the New Testament letters that he writes to the churches from this point. And there's one verse that I really want to focus on today, but we'll look at it in context. And if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to go to Acts chapter 20 today. And in Acts chapter 20, the one verse that we are going to highlight is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And the crazy thing is, if, if you've been with us for a while, you know the Gospel Project has a tendency to do this wide view overall. Today is supposed to be Acts chapter 20 through Acts chapter 23. But as I was reading it, um, I have the Bible app, and I'm not sure about you on the Bible app, but it's easy to highlight a verse on the Bible app. And as I was reading Acts chapter 20, the only verse I had highlighted in all of Acts chapter 20 was Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And this verse stood out to me. And it was the, the basis of what we're going to talk about today because even to look at 21, 22, and 23, it all starts because of what he says in this verse. And this is what it says here. But I, Paul, consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of God's grace. That is my purpose. That is why I exist. That is my dream, if you want to go back to the, the story from Netflix. It's a powerful verse. I mean, it literally jumps right off the page, especially when you highlight it. And it speaks to the purpose in life as we have in this world that we have. It jumps out in the middle of the section where Paul is, is talking to the leaders at Ephesus. Now, what had happened is at the end of last week, we, he was shipped off because they had gotten into that riot. He went off to Thessalonica. And so he's gone around. He's done different things. But he knows that God has called him to go to Jerusalem. And in being called to go to Jerusalem, he is being uh, prompted by the Spirit. 
being compelled by the Spirit to go. And he also knows that on his travels as he goes to Jerusalem, this will be the last time he has a chance to see some different people. He put all kinds of time, all kinds of effort into the city and the area of Ephesus and, and the church around there, and he poured so much into them. He wanted to give basically one last will and testament to them. To basically say, I'm not going to see you again, but let me give you one more challenge. As a matter of fact, he didn't even go into Ephesus. He had them meet him so he wouldn't ha- get kind of stuck there. You, have you ever been in that place before? You're like, if I go in there, I'm never coming out. He was worried about that. And he knew he had a place to go. And so he said, come and meet me. And this is what he actually challenges them with. If you go back to verse 18, it says, when they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the very first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, And during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly, as well as from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, The Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Last week, our battle was keep from being distracted by the idols of the world. Keep the mission, stay on mission, the mission that we receive from Christ to keep moving. This week, It's all about the opposition that gets in the way. How do we fight the good fight against the opposition that comes between us and the mission that God has called us to? When I grew up, I played a lot of basketball. And one of my coaches in college, he was always about, as funny as it is, I was considered a big man. Now, if you know anything about basketball, I'm like the size of an NBA point guard. But I played center a lot of times in the small school that I was at, either center or I played power forward. When you play power forward or center, you're down on the block. And that's that bottom big square on the key. You know, when you line up for a free throw, you're on the block there. And one thing he always told me, hold your spot. Hold your spot. Win the spot. You want to have the the strength. You want to have the endurance. You want to be the one. So when the pass comes into you, you have the advantage. That is something that we have to understand even in our lives When the opposition comes, they want to knock you off your spot. When the opposition comes, they want to knock you off your spot. They want to take us out of position. I've been able to do uh, the jujitsu on Sunday afternoons with with Reese over here. There he's throwing a little little, uh, pump up up there. I'm terrible. Just going to let you know that, okay? I I am not flexible. I hurt every time I leave. I'm out of breath before we're even done doing the warm-up drills. Um, But I'm in there doing it. And one of the things that Reese will tell you is that you want to have the advantage. You want to be the one that has control of the situation. You want to be in the right side mount. You want to be in the right place. So you have the advantage. The opposition wants to knock you off that spot. They want to knock you off that spot. In our battles, the opposition wants to knock you off of your mission to win for Christ. And the opposition is going to come. And you know what they want you to do? And it will come, by the way. They want you to abort the mission. They want you to abort the mission. We cannot abort the mission. When opposition comes, we cannot just curl up into a safe space and just exist for the rest of our lives. 
When the opposition comes, we cannot lose our passion in life just because some temporary situation within our life or around us distracts us or pulls us away. Remember the words we just sang? This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. And how do we fight our battles? What was the answer? It was, when I feel surrounded, I realize that I am surrounded by you. Last week, I threw out some Mickey quotes. Mick was in Rock's corner, right? I told you last week, we have to have Jesus in our corner. We have to understand that if we have Jesus in our corner, it's going to strengthen us. We have to remember who we're surrounded by. Who's the one that's in our corner encouraging us? Who's the one in our, in our corner that's training us and pushing us and growing us and using us and calling us and leading us and reminding me why I'm here in the first place? Why do I exist? Can I tell you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, our sole purpose on this planet is to glorify God for Him forever. That is it. It's not us. And who's going to remind us when the distractions come and the oppositions come and the idols come? It's going to be when we are surrounded by Jesus. And the other thing He's going to do is He's going to remind us of the tactics the enemy likes to use. He does that throughout Scripture. He does it by speaking through Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he says, be sober-minded and be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. A few verses earlier than that in 1 Peter 4, 12, he says these words, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual was happening to you. It's going to happen. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 a while back we went through that and really kind of focused on that one specific chapter called the faith chapter and as we looked at that faith chapter it says by faith all these great heroes did all these great things but it wraps up the author of hebrews wraps up that chapter with these words in verses 36 through 38 others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment they were stoned they were sodden too they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes on the ground. This is talking about those who are following by faith Christ. It's not always going to be easy. There will be opposition. But the great thing is, is that Hebrews writer, just a couple verses later in the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you grew up memorizing verses this is probably a set of verses that you memorize it says therefore since we have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us let us lay aside every hindrance every obstacle every opposition and the sin that so easily ensnares us let us run with endurance this race that lies before us keeping our eyes on jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him jesus christ he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God keep your eyes on Jesus as you run this race who is in your corner see we've been given a mission we've been given a calling and we're meant to live that mission and that calling out in our lives but the opposition will do everything it can to distract us we can't waste our life being distracted we can't just go through the motions. See, I was reading through 
a commentary in this passage in Acts chapter 20. It's one of the commentaries that I, I kind of rely back and forth with. And it's all about Acts, and it's called the Christ Exposition. And it focuses everything on Christ. It fit actually really well with this idea of the gospel project, that everything focuses on Christ. But they wrote a very specific commentary on this one specific verse. And it was one that I went, oh, that stings even more so since COVID. It was written well before COVID, by the way. But this is what it says. The goal of life is not to have a long life, but a full life. Where do we find a full life? Doesn't Jesus say, I came to give you life and life to the full? But have a, life, a full life. One lived both to and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. But how often do we get distracted from that? I know that was Paul's goal. That's what he says. I this is not my life. My life is not my own. It's all for the glory of Christ. We have to live that way, even when there's opposition ahead. Because he knew the opposition was coming. You read the rest of the book of Acts. You read the book from, or the things from, like, Philippians. You read things from Ephesians. He talks about, these are books he's written from prison. Letters he's written from prison, and it changes everything. He says, I'm still going to press on, though, for the glory of Jesus. When I was in my mid-20s, I was given a recording of a sermon that came from Passion One Day. It's now called the Passion Conference. It's a huge conference in Atlanta, Georgia, but Passion One Day was just the beginning of this conference, just a few years old. And they had a guy by the name of John Piper. Some of you have probably heard that name since then because this specific conference that he spoke out kind of launched who he was or who he is. And in it, there was a bunch of people gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, a bunch of college kids, a bunch of mid-20s kids, uh, which I was at the time, um, as, as long ago as that was. Um, but the, the reality is, is he spoke into the lives of these Gen X and kind of early millennial kids. And he asked a very specific question and, and really gave a very powerful statement. And he shared these words. I'm just going to read from you the, some of the transcript of what he said. It says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, he said, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the end of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and then be set on fire for them. He goes on to say this. Some of you don't care about making a difference though. You just want to live your normal life. You just want a nice car. You just want a nice spouse. You just want a nice house. You just want to have nice kids and eventually retire. That's what he was calling them out to be. And he said, you know what the words he said to describe that? That is a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. And then he goes on to share two stories. One about two missionaries in Cameroon and two about two people who retired early and moved to Florida. And as he talked about these two missionaries that moved to Cameroon, one was in her late 70s, the other was in her early 80s, and they had invested their entire lives into the unreached people groups 
of Cameroon to get the message out there right up until the day they were driving their car and their brakes failed and they drove over a cliff and died. And he said, to many of you, that sounds like a tragedy, but to me, that sounds like glory. And then he goes on to talk about the two people that had retired in Florida. He said these two people had, had taken their retirement early, one at 51, one at 59. They moved down to Florida. They bought a boat. They trolled around in this big boat. They went and they played softball, I believe is what he said, and they collected seashells. That's what they spent their time doing. He goes, for many of us that might think like it's something big, but he wrapped up these words. That's not something big, that is the tragedy, he said. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. He said, I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, and collecting shells at the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give account to what you did. And you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a nice swing, and look at how cool my boat is. The last six, seven words he wraps up with is, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it chasing after those things. See, for me and many in my Gen X generation that were Christians, that was a call to arms. That was a call to do something with the life we've been given and not to waste it. And the fight to go against the desire to waste it, even though we never would say, I'm wasting it, but to fight to go, to go against that desire for after the American dream, then the end really doesn't matter. We have to fight that. And as I read Paul's words in Acts chapter 20, verses 24, I see him saying this, it's better for me to give up my life for Christ than to waste it on chasing after whatever dream might have been at that point in time in culture. It's better for me to lay down my life for Christ than waste it on anything else. I mean, pull that verse back up again for me, just real quick. If you have it in your Bibles, just look what he says. But I consider my life of no value to myself. What's he saying there? I don't count my life of any value for me and my kingdom. It's not my movie reference for the day, Lord of the Rings. It's not my precious. It's not what I have to hold on to today to, in order to, to feel complete. My life is meant for one thing. You know what he says? Next part of that verse. My purpose, my one thing is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. There has been a race that has been laid out in front of every believer. In front of him, he says, this is my life that is laid out in front of me and I'm supposed to run it with the ministry that's been given to me by Jesus. And what is that ministry? What is my job? What is my goal? To testify to the gospel of God's grace. That is my goal. That is what my life is supposed to be all about. So here's this picture. There's a race course. There's a race course, and I'm running on it. You're running on it. And as we're running on it, this is why we live. It's what my life is all about. It's what my life means Finish the race. Fulfill the ministry. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't leave the course. Don't go backwards like that video up front was talking about. Don't waste your life off the course. Now, I know some of you guys 
like the message commentary, the message translation uh, by Eugene Peterson. This is what it says in verses 23 and 24. I like the way it puts it real simple. As Paul says, I'm completely in the dark about what will happen when I get there, being Jerusalem. I don't know, or I do know, that it won't be a picnic. For the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times and imprisonment ahead, but that matters little. That matters little. What matters most to me is to finish what God has started. The job of the Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. That doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter to me. As he says that, he says, I want to be faithful to Christ and what he has called me to. That is what matters. I wrote this down. I can see him saying it. It's better to be faithful and die than unfaithful and live. It's better to be faithful and die than unfaithful and live. I told you, see, this passage really sets up the book of Acts or the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of Paul's life. And while he's able to write about joy while sitting in a prison, writing to the Philippians. As a matter of fact, within that letter, he writes these words in verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. It says, and something we talked about last week, more than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ. See, what was it that Paul counted as dung? You know what I think? I think living to 80 years old, making a boatload of money and never getting sick. He considered that dung. As a matter of fact, he said, I consider that dung because all I'm thinking is I'm just going to frolic about. I don't know if you use the word frolic, but I'm just going to frolic about off the course. I'm going to dance around in the meadows when I know there's this course of life that may or may not have things that are going to get in my way, things that could potentially hurt me. He talks about imprisonment. He talks about beatings. He talks about chains. He talks about... I know those things are there, so I'm just going to kind of do my thing over here all the while while dancing around, not realizing that he's dancing right towards a cliff. Thinking that's the life he's been called to, but he didn't say that. That's the dung. It's better for me to lay down my life than to waste it. So that leads to the big question for today. What does it look like to lay down your life? What does it look like to lay down your life? And I believe from 22 to 24, Paul gives us five very clear pictures of what it means to lay down your life. The first picture is this, to be compelled by the Spirit. That's what it looks like to lay down your life. He says, and I am now on my way to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit. See, we remember, as it says in 1 Corinthians, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We belong to the one who redeemed us. So we glorify God with our lives. Do you know what it means to be compelled Uh, Some of your translations might say constrained. But here's the definition of what it means to be compelled. Dictionary.com says, forced or driven to a particular course of action, often by an irresistible internal urge. You know what that internal urge that is irresistible, it says, this is the way I've got to go? For Christians, it's called the Holy Spirit. 
See, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he grabs a hold of you and he opens your eyes to this new passion, this new way of life, a life that is not your own. If you read Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 says, if you live in the flesh, these are going to be the desires you have in your life. But if you live in the Spirit, this is the way you're going to want to live your life because he's come in and he has changed you. We are found in the Holy Spirit and it changes everything about us. We are compelled by him to live and lay down our life. So the first one is we are compelled by the Spirit. The second one is found in verse 22 when he says, I will not know what I get when I get there. I don't know what I'm going to encounter on my way to Jerusalem. Content in not knowing. Content in not knowing. First, compelled by the Spirit, but second, as we lay down our life, we need to be content in not knowing. This is a struggle for me. I don't know about for you. I like to be in control. I like to at least have a clue about what's coming next. I like to be the one who has a plan. I like to be the one who is told what's going to happen. At least a little control in the situation. But Paul says, I have no control over the situation, and I'm content in that. Because the Spirit is leading me, God is guiding me, and that is where it's at. He knows that God knows. And he's content in that. How many of us over the last 18 to 20 months have been a little struggling with, God, I know you're in control, but. I've said that lots of times. I, I, as a matter of fact, we were in Phoenix this last week, uh, just on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Got to go out and see the, the Packers beat the Cardinals. Um, and uh, the, one of my good friends, it's like, hey, come over on on uh, Wednesday night, I just want to talk with you a little bit. Got there at 7, left after midnight. The conversation ranged all over the place, but one of the big things was, what do you see going on in the world today, and how does it fit into the rapture? I'm like, I thought we were just talking like friends. <laughs> I didn't know I was on pastor duty right now. And, and I jokingly told him, I said, here's the, here's the thing. I know there's amillennial. I know there's premillennial. I know there's postmillennial. We'll talk more about that stuff in... In, uh, in January when we get to Revelation in this gospel project. But I said, I, said, I, I jokingly say, I, I'm a pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out. God knows what he's doing. I, I'm just along for the ride. If I get to leave early, I'm okay with that because I'm not sure if I want to be around. But if I'm around, that's because God's plan has me around and I'm supposed to do one job, glorify him. And that's what we're called to do in it all. And we need to be content with that. As a matter of fact, I even looked at that, that passage in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about Abraham. Verse 8 says these words, By faith Abraham, when he was called out, he obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. God led him, he went. He went out even though he didn't know. And he was okay with that. He was okay with that. I may not know what's next, but I trust God more than I trust myself. That's where Abraham was. That's where I believe Paul was. That's where I believe we need to be. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what's the rest of that verse? Lean not on your own understanding. Don't rely on yourself because you are going to trip yourself up. So he went out. First, we're compelled by the Spirit. Second, we're content in not knowing. But third, the word courage comes to mind. The word courage. The courage to go forward even when I know that the direction won't be easy. See, in verse 23, it says, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. If somebody told you, 
this is the way you should go, but by the way, you're going to get beat up, you're going to get arrested, you're going to get imprisoned, you're going to have all of these things happen to you. Would you go, okay, let's do it, because that's the way that God called me to go. No, we're, we're going to hold back just a, a little bit. As a matter of fact, though, we should know that that's what's going to happen, because Jesus told us that's what's going to happen. Jesus, in his own words, said, hey, they persecuted me. Guess what? They're going to persecute my followers. Paul writes it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12. He says these words. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. When I read that, I have two words. Wait, what? Because that, that doesn't sound like what I signed up for when I was in junior high. And they're like, do you want to go to heaven? Yeah. Okay, well, accept Jesus. I'm like, Cool. Now what? Oh, by the way, the now what is, is you're going to be persecuted along the way. Oh, let me reel that back real quick. How good does heaven sound? But that is how the Holy Spirit compels us and moves us forward, and he brings that contentment to not know what's coming next, but still have the courage to move forward. If we want to live a godly life in Jesus that is not our own, you will be persecuted. Run the race. Follow the course, even when it leads through kind of stuff we don't want to go through the fourth one found in acts chapter 20 20 verse 24 the verse we've already read he says those last words my ministry is to testify to the gospel of god's grace make much of jesus make much of jesus you're like wait the first three had c's it was be commit or be um content and and Make sure that, that you are, have courage and, and really, when it comes right down to it, be compelled. Those are all C's. Make much of Jesus is an M. Okay, well, live for the cause of Christ if you need C's, okay? The cause of Christ is what should move us forward to make much of Him. But here's the truth. Each of us in this room have a different form of ministry we've been given. Each of us in this room will all have the same goal, though. That is to make much of Jesus. See, all Christians are running the race. Some courses are going to be laid out different. Some are going to have twists and turns that are going to be different. Some are going to have terrain and briar patches that will be different. But the goal is still the same. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, that Paul also writes, post all of this as he writes back to that church. It says, He predestined us to be adopted as a sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to praise to the praise of his glorious grace that he's lavished on us in the beloved one do you understand that is the ultimate meaning of our lives the praise of his glorious grace to live and make much of his glory that is the unwasted life obviously the flip side of that would be the wasted life the one that lives for my own personal praise and my own personal glory so fifth fifth one here Acts chapter 20, verse 22, going back up a little bit. He says, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem. The C word for that one is commitment. Commitment. Commitment to Christ and his mission. Commitment to Christ and his mission. That commitment means these things. We will not abort the mission when the going gets tough. It means we will not abort the mission when the American dream is over here on this side and it looks really, really good. It means we will not abort the mission when we retire and that retirement age hits. See, 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's a quote from Craig Rochelle, so I can't take credit for it. If you're not dead, you're not done. If you're not dead, you're not done. We still are living on on mission. Let me be very clear here. I'm not saying that we all need to go sell all of our stuff and become monks. Unless God calls you to do it, then you need to do that. But what I am saying is, is it's okay to have nice things. It's okay to have a nice house. It's okay to have nice cars. It's okay to have a well-paying job that leads to retirement. It's okay to have kids that are involved in sporting activities. It's okay to have kids that are doing things. The problem is, is that when those things become our God things, like I said last week, when good things become God things, they become bad things. When that becomes the goal of our life, instead of using those things to glorify God in our lives, that's when the problem becomes a problem. So we have to remember this. We have to remember this. What are you living for? What are you living for? What is it in our lives that we are living for? What is your purpose? See, there's going to be a day when all of this comes to an end. You know, I, I was telling Kyle yesterday, we were up here um, kind of getting everything all set, and they were practicing the uh, I'll Fly Away and In the Garden. That song, In the Garden, is one of those songs, maybe the same for you, it's one that triggers funerals. Uh, my stepdad's funeral when I was 17 years old, we sang In the Garden. It might have been the first time I'd ever heard it, but every time I've ever heard it since then, it's generally not been in a service. It has been at a funeral. And I think about funerals, and obviously funerals are one of those things that you just see the end of this life. There's another life that is eternal beyond it. When this ends, when there are no more sunrises, no more sunsets, no more minutes or hours or days to just waste while you're killing time, as Rick Warren says, that's suicide. As we're killing time, all the things you've collected are going to get passed on to somebody else. All your wealth, all your fame, all your power, it's going to shrivel up and be gone. It's going somewhere else. It will not matter what you owned, and it's not going to matter what you were owed. It's not going to matter what grudges you had or resentments you had or frustrations you had or jealousies you had because those are all going to fade away. All your hopes, all your ambitions, all your plans, all your bucket lists, all your to-do lists, gone. It's all going to be gone. The wins and losses that once seemed so important will also fade away. All of this stuff so much that we strive for in this world ultimately won't matter. I shall toss this in to fit into culture. It doesn't matter your gender and it doesn't matter your color either. Those things are going to be gone too. When we stand before the Heavenly Father at the end of our lives, that is the one thing that's going to matter. Are we offering Him shells or are we offering Him the things that glorified Him? What is it in our lives? What's going to matter? How are your days going to be measured? Not what you bought, but what you built into others. Not what you got, but instead what you gave. What will matter is not your success, but instead your significance in other people's lives. Not what you learned, but what you taught. Every act of integrity, every act of compassion, every act of courage, every act of sacrifice that, that lifted other people up, that there's so much so that they wanted to imitate and emulate you. That is what is going to matter. Not your competence, but instead your character. What will matter is not how many people you knew, but how many people will feel the lasting loss when you are gone. That is what's going to matter. Not your memories, but the memories you leave in other people's lives. What will matter is how long you, not so much 
will be remembered, but by whom and for what? What are we going to be remembered for? Living a life that matters, can I tell you this, doesn't happen on accident. It doesn't happen on accident. It happens because we make a conscious choice, compelled by the Spirit, content in not knowing what's next, committed to the cause of Christ. That is what matters, to choose a life that matters by laying it down for Him. Can I challenge you to do that this morning? Father, we are grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you continue to do and the way you continue to work in each and every one of our lives. God, this, this message this morning was, again, just a refreshing challenge to me on what I truly live for, what I truly am passionate about. It's not the wins and losses of my football team. It's not the wins and losses of, of my kids' teams. It's not the, the, the things of earth that I, I have to get bigger and I have to get better, but God, it's about glorifying you. It's about encouraging others to glorify you. To live a life that is not my own, instead I lay it down. But God, it's a battle. Every day, it's a battle. Far too often, I want to chase after the things of this world and get off course. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit in my life compelling me to move in your direction. Changing my heart to be content and even not knowing to be committed to the call of Christ, to follow after him and, and use this life, not for my glory, but for yours. We pray it all in your name. Amen.